Well, last week we began a sermon series in the Psalms called God Our Refuge, Finding and Delighting in the God Who Saves Us. Uh, And it is my hope that as we give ourselves to these psalms throughout the rest of the summer, we'll learn more about who God is, we'll learn more about the world in which we live, and we'll also learn more about ourselves. And that in turning to these psalms each Sunday throughout the summer, that uh, the psalms would be the place that we turn. It would be our practice in our daily lives to turn to the psalms in the midst of our joys, in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of indifference or boredom or deep anxiety. See, the hope is that the Psalms would be the commentary for our lives and for our world. It's the playlist. It would activate our imaginations. It would give us, give us words to speak to any sort of context, any emotion we might have. And it would just fill our minds and our imaginations and give hope where we need hope. It would give us wisdom where we so desperately need it. It would guide us on our way. Now, I mentioned last week that Psalms 1 and 2, uh, many commentators and many biblical scholars think that they are meant really to be part of uh, the same uh, psalm, two halves of a whole. Um, And so they're so closely linked together, and you actually need one and the other to uh, help understand uh, the other. So this morning, I'm going to read both Psalms 1 and 2. You only have Psalm 2 in your bulletin, but you can listen as I read Psalm 1, and I'll pick up Psalm 2. If you uh, like to read in the Pew Bible, the, both are found on page 448. But let's give our attention to God's Word. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. It's given to us in love, and it's absolutely true. Would you pray with me? Our great God and Heavenly Father, already this morning we have sung of your great mercy. We have had children delight in sharing uh, the good news of the gospel with us. We have asked for your healing in an offertory. We have confessed our sins. We have heard your assurance of pardon and grace. And now, Lord, we need you to speak to us through your word, by the power of your spirit. 
Would you make us a people who cling to these psalms as words of life, as words that they are? May they help us to understand the world that we live in and the king that we so desperately need and we have in your son Jesus. We pray all these things in his name. Amen. Well, this week there was an article in the New York Times with this headline. It was really a question. It says, is the world falling apart or does it just feel that way? Is the world falling apart or just, does it just feel that way? And I immediately my reaction was yes. Like, does it need to be one or the other? In many ways, it does feel like it's falling apart. It is falling apart, and I feel that way. According to the author, however, the answer was inconclusive, which I didn't find super helpful. But articles like that one are written constantly, and the answers to that question that the author was asking is sought out all the time because depending on the day or the week that you're having, depending on the latest news, and depending on what's going on in your life, the world could be falling apart and it could actually seem that way. Whether or not, with or without a pandemic, with or without uh, inflation running rampant, with or without a looming recession, this is the question that we ask ourselves all the time. Are things falling apart? Are we going to be okay? And it seems like the answer to that question stems largely in just how closely you're willing to pay attention to the world around you. How deeply you want to pay attention to the news. How deeply you want to, uh, how widely you want to read and understand what's going on in the world. And then also what you're facing in your own personal life. See, living in this world and being a human means we will always be faced with that question. Are we going to be okay? Are we going to make it? But then also, what do we do? What do we do with all of the chaos? What do we do with, uh, with what we see around us? Right? We have to answer those questions. We have to make room for that. And so we all turn to what we know, to what will give us answers, to what can help us interpret either the madness going on in our world or our country or even the madness going on inside of us. We turn to distraction. We turn to news, politics, any sort of entertainment. See, we all have the places that we go to seek comfort when the world does feel like it is in chaos. Looking for comfort, looking for answers, looking for escape. All of us, no matter what your faith background is, no matter what brought you here, you are looking and seeking for refuge, shelter in the storm. And so Psalm 2 invites you to take refuge in God. That's how the psalm ends, right? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When faced with the upheaval, uncertainty, chaos, brokenness, rebellion in the world, Psalm 2 and the God that we find in Psalm 2 is the place that we ought to turn that's the case I want to make for us this morning. So I want to look at two things from this passage, specifically in Psalm chapter 2. First, I want, to, I want us to see the chaos we face and then the king we need. The chaos we face and the king we need. So notice that Psalm 2 here is not asking us to close our eyes to the realities of the world. You see, in encouraging us to turn to the Psalms, before and more often than turning to the newsfeed or turning anywhere else. You're not being invited to ignore the realities of the world. You're not being asked to close your eyes to what's going on around you. I think oftentimes when uh, we talk about, or the perception is when you uh, give your attention to God's word, it's, it's in this moment where you have this nice mountaintop vista, you're on vacation because you have time to do this. You're on this mountaintop vista, you have your Bible open, you have the perfect cup of coffee, your favorite pen, your journal, and you're just ready to go. That's what it means to give yourselves to God's word. And if you get that this week, go for it. Do it. 
do it for all of us. Not even, if you have that opportunity, by all means. But that's not all there is, and that's not what we're talking about here in Psalm 2. The Psalms are where you take your hardest, most painful, most pressing questions about the world. The frustration, the injustice, the hurts, all of it. And Psalm 2, being, in, being the introduction that it is, opens with a frequently asked question. Why? Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. See, this is, an important, this is important to understand because the question isn't will the nations rage or what happens if the nations rage or even when will the nations rage. It's not will the kings of the earth plot, but why? Which right off the bat tells us that we should expect chaos. The world will feel and seem at times as though it is falling apart. The question is when, it's the question is then why? And so we're given this picture of nations raging, of peoples plotting, kings and rulers gathering together against God. It's a world of chaos. Does that world sound familiar to you? Are you familiar with this world in which you inhabit? I think you are. We all are. Now verse 3 in some ways answers the question asked in verse 1. Why? Why is this happening? Why do the nations rage? And verse 3 tells us, because we want our independence. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Remember, Psalm 1 told us that the blessed man walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The wicked are like chaff. So blessedness for the Psalms is complete reliance, meditation, and devotion to God and to his word. So in Psalm 2 now, the nations are not meditating on God's law, they're meditating on vanity. Verse 1 is, uses the same language, verse 1 in Psalm 2 uses the same language that, that Psalm 1 did. The people's plot in vain. It's meditating on vanity. In verse 3, the bonds they want to burst apart, the cords they want to cast away, that is a reference to God's word, to his law, and all the promises he makes to us and to the world. They want nothing to do with them. See, Psalm 1 lays out for us the invitation, that path to life that we're all looking for. And it's found in accepting God's rule and living by the hope for what he promises. But Psalm 2 tells us that the nations want no part of that. This is their great declaration of independence. Let us free ourselves from this God. Let us break free from the chains and the shackles that tell us how to live our lives, who we should worship, what we should do, how we should live. The nations want freedom from all of that. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you will know that from nearly the very beginning of the biblical history, this has been the plot. This has been the cry of the people, desiring and longing for independence. Let us declare our independence from God and free ourselves from his reign because we can do better. This is what the serpent suggested to Adam and Eve in the garden when he convinced Eve to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was the hope of the nations that gathered together to build the Tower of Babel. They were saying, we are better off on our own. And so we need to be free. And this is what kings and leaders of nations would do time and time again all throughout the Old Testament. This constant plotting and scheming to separate themselves and the world from the God who had made them, from the God who had promised to rescue them, from the God who had provided for them. And this was also oftentimes the cry of Israel. 
The very people, the very people of God, as they wandered through the desert, even though they had seen God rescue them from the mighty hand of Pharaoh, even though God had promised to be with them, they took up this call to independence, believing that there was a better way, that there was another path, a better path. Maybe that through independence from God, they could find their own way through the desert, that they could find the promised land, the land that they were hoping for on their own terms, in their own wisdom. And if we are honest, we too find ourselves joining our voices, crying for independence from God. Let us burst their bonds apart. Let us be free from the God who made us. You see, it's not just the world out there that is chaotic, that wants freedom and independence. It's also us. When we are left to ourselves, this is the cry of the heart. I want independence. I want to do it my own way. But Psalm 2 is an invitation to declare our dependence upon God, to admit that we too often join our voices with the rebellious cry of the rest of the world. And instead of proclaiming the hope to a watching world, of a God who promises blessedness, we add to the chaos. And any exercise, any endeavor to separate us from God's rule, Psalm 2 tells us, is absolutely futile. It is to meditate on vanity. And it doesn't lead to life. It actually leads to death. So this is the chaos that we find ourselves in. Psalm 2 opens our eyes to the chaos of the world. But also Psalm 2 also shows us that we actually have the king we need, the refuge we long for, the refuge we need. Notice in verse 4, the first time we hear God in the Psalms is not a command. The first time we hear God, he's laughing. He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now, I don't find anything of the first three verses of Psalm 2 very funny. The world that is painted for us is a world fraying at the seams, rebelling against its creator, a world that instead of following the paths of righteousness, as it's invited to in Psalm 1, is now trying to, trying to uh, um, unleash its shackles, burst its bonds apart. They've taken the path of the wicked. And that's where we are when we get to verse 4. And the first thing we hear from God is not a command, it's not a rebuke, it's not an anguished cry, it's laughter. Why is God laughing? Well, first, because he sees what is happening. That's why he's laughing. See, he's not far off. He's not unaware of the state of the world. He's not aloof. He actually sees what's going on. I think this is oftentimes our first assumption or even our accusation we level against God when our world is in chaos. Right? Where are you? And our assumption is that God simply isn't paying attention. But this psalm, Psalm 2, tells us that God actually sees. So notice, first of all, that for the psalmist, and actually Acts chapter 4, verses 24 and 25, tell us that David wrote Psalm 2. So for David, the chaos of the world does not mean that God is asleep at the wheel, or that he's far off, or that he's uninterested. David knows that God is keenly aware that he sees everything that is going on. And then the other accusation we level against God, when the world has gone mad is that, well, if he's not distant, then he must be powerless. He must be overwhelmed by the power and the rebellion and the chaos. But see, where the wicked, in Psalm 1, sat in the seat of scoffers, the wicked are sitting and scoffing in Psalm 1. What is God doing in Psalm 2? Now God sits in heaven, and he scoffs. Yahweh scoffs at the scoffers. That's what it, that's what it means when he holds them in derision. He mocks them. 
he laughs. Now, this might seem startling, offensive, perhaps rude on the part of God. You really want a God who mocks the nations, who scoffs and laughs as the nations rise up? Well, yes, we do. See, you and I so oftentimes can get so overwhelmed at the state of the world around us. I think it's safe to say that that would describe how so many of us, if not all of us, have felt over the last, certainly the last few years. It's just been overwhelming. The brokenness and injustice wash over, over, over us. And it seems to sweep us out to the sea. There are things we can't fathom, things we don't understand, powers and dynamics and, and pandemics that we are completely powerless to stop. It is the reality of the helplessness of our situation. And of course, our helplessness then leads to hopelessness. And so we believe that because we are overwhelmed, because we don't under, understand what's going on, then God doesn't either. If we're overwhelmed, if we don't understand, then so is God. But God sees, and he is not overwhelmed. He is not at a loss. We have a creator, and he's the creator and the redeemer of the world. The one who sustains you, and the one who sustains the nations. And he will not be overthrown. No matter the scheme, no matter the plot, no matter the power, he laughs. And he laughs because he loves this world. He laughs because he loves his creation, and he loves you, and he loves you, and he loves this world too much to turn it over to the hands of those who think they know better. He loves it too much to turn it over to the hands who think they can do better. But this laughter, not only does this laughter show us that God sees, that he's not overwhelmed, but the laughter of God, the first thing we hear God doing and saying in Psalm 2, this laughter also indicates that there is a plan. That there is a way, there is a greater hope. That God has a plan for this world. And that's what the rest of Psalm 2 tells us. See, verses 1 through 3 are not the last word. The rebellion of the nations, that kings and powers gathering together to declare their independence. That's not, that, that's not all that is happening in the world. Even though so often it can seem like that. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that God is at work in the world, in this world even in the midst of anger and the rage of the nations, to bring about its healing. And God is at work by appointing a king. Right? Verse 6, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I love those words, as for me. See, the kings of the earth, the rulers gathering together, kings and rulers, you can go about your plot. You can try and do all the schemes and it's going to be in vain because as for me, well, I've got a plan. As for me, I'm going to end futility. As for me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And so for the rest of the psalm, we have God's response. His answer to the hopelessness we see in the world and the helplessness that we find ourselves, that we find in our lives. The answer to how we can cope with our fears. The answer to how we can manage and, and cope with our anxieties in the face of a world that is against God and against his people. As for me. I've set my, my, my king on, on a hill. Verses 7 through 12, we learn about this king and how he is the answer to and the hope for the world that stands against God. This is the king we need. Verse 7, he's been rightly appointed. See, so many kings and so many rulers have no right to rule. They have no right to have the power which they have, which is why that power is often, so often gets abused, both today and throughout history. But this king, this king is the son. This is the king that God has put on Zion. So he has a right to the throne. 
verses 8 and 9, we see that he is a powerful king. Listen again, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, setting this world to right, it's not too hard for this king. It will not be a struggle. There is no enemy, there is no opponent that can overwhelm this king. This is the king you need. But it's not just that he's in his rightful place, and it's not just that he's powerful enough to dash the nations, nations to pieces. This king is also a forgiving and a welcoming king. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, and serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, this isn't a king who looks only to crush his opponents or any rebellious people. He offers them an invitation to return to him. The call here to rejoice with trembling is to return to a powerful king with great joy. The nations tremble because of his power, but they rejoice because at last they are serving the very king that they were made to serve. And so all of this, this is why God laughs from heaven in the face of the chaos and the rebellion of the nations and the world and the rulers. This is how he responds to the rage of the nations and to the people's rebellion. And this is how he answers the very first word of the psalm. Why? By putting his king on his rightful throne. A king who sees, a king who forgives, a king who is powerful enough to rule the nations and even to subdue rebellion, and a king who welcomes the nations back into their rightful place under his rule. This is the king we need. This is a king for the world of chaos. This is a king for your life. Now, this psalm, because it was written by David, was written in the early days of Israel, and then it was taken up and sung all throughout Israel's history. And you can imagine that the longing that this psalm must have invoked, generation after generation, as they took up these words and asked this question, why? Why do the nations rage? And what, oh God, are you going to do about it? Where's this king that you have promised? Was it David? Was it Solomon? Was it the kings that followed? Where's the one who sits on Zion? Where's the one who can subdue the nations and welcome the rebellious ones home? And in fact, this question gets asked over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. Where's the king? Where's the promised one? Because we know verses 1 and 3. We know verses 1 through 3 are absolutely true. That's everyone's experience all throughout history. Send us a king. And so as the New Testament opens, we see that this king that was longed for, the king that was promised, arrives in Jesus. He is the rightfully appointed son. He is the one who at long last has come to rule and reign over the nations. Jesus is the answer to the rebellion and to the rage of the nations, to plots of vanity of kings and rulers. And you can see this all throughout Jesus' life. You see it put on, a, on display in his birth, when the Magi come bearing gifts from the nations. Even as a baby, the nations begin streaming to him. And yet there is Herod looming in the background, plotting his death. His plot is utter vanity because God has appointed his king. You see it in Jesus' life and his ministry. He's always so patient, always forgiving, welcoming the stranger, the sinner, the tax collector, the prostitute, eating and feasting with them. He is welcoming the world into his kingdom, Jew and Gentile alike, finding shelter in him because God has appointed his king. You see it in his death. In Jesus' death on the cross, he faces the anger and the rage of the nations. And the point of all of that rage, all of that scheming of the Romans and the Jewish leaders, puts Jesus on the cross to die a terrible death. That's where all the scheming from verses 1 to 3 leads. 
but of course it doesn't end there because you also see in his resurrection that what was promised in verses 8 and 9 that he's going to break them with a rod of iron he's going to dash all his enemies to pieces this is what he's done in his death this is what he's done to death death cannot hold him down the greatest enemy the greatest point of our fear and our worry the thing that causes so much chaos in this world death itself has been defeated in his resurrection and you see it in his ascension Jesus takes his rightful place on Zion as a victorious king with now the invitation for all the world and all the nations from verse 11 to serve the Lord with fear and rejoicing to serve with joy because Jesus is now in charge this is our hope this is our hope in, in the world in which we live this is the song that we sing we have an answer to the chaos we have an answer to the pain we have an answer to the longing heart we have an answer to the confusion of the world we have an answer to the rage of the nations we have a king and he sits on a holy hill he sits on zion he is our answer he is our hope his death is our death and now his life is our life jesus is the king that we need which means this that because psalm 2 is true we can move into a world where nations rage where our neighbors want nothing but independence from this God, and we can say with great courage and love and patience that there actually is hope. There is an answer. God has set his king on a holy hill. Christ is our life, and he is at work even now. And he is, he is at work through you, leading you into conversations and places that you might not have any idea what to do. Conversations where you might not have any idea what to say. But there's your king, sending you into the chaos of the world. He's the king you need. See, Jesus is our only hope, and this psalm invites us to cast our total allegiance and all of our dependence upon him, to give ourselves to his healing work in the world, and to rejoice with trembling. But we need not fear, because we have a king who sits in his rightful place. And look, where Psalm 1 started with a promise of blessedness, right? Blessed is the one. Psalm 1 started with blessedness. Psalm 2 now ends and concludes with the same promise of blessing. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 reminds us, and it tells the nations that as they rage, as they seek to undo uh, God's rule, that there is no refuge from God. No one can hide but there is refuge in God. He has set his king on a holy hill and he invites us each and every day of our lives to find our refuge and our hope in him. Jesus is the king we need for the chaos of the world, for the chaos of our hearts. And this table invites us to seek refuge in him, to rest and receive upon him alone for our sustenance, for our hope and for our joy. We have the king we need. We should celebrate. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that for the chaos of the world that so easily undoes us and threatens us and causes us great pain and sorrow, you have given us an answer. You have given us a king, the king that we need. And so, God, I pray that you would equip us to take up the call to face the chaos of the world and to seek total and utter dependence and reliance upon you, to find hope and refuge and shelter in nowhere else and no one else than in you and in your word and your truth and the promises and in your son, Jesus. Help us to be a people who seek that with great joy 
with joyful trembling before you, knowing that you have called us to your very self. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.